0: Past Ball Show, brought to you by JohnPelle.com.
1: What the f- do you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- put that in. I don't. F- so the Tribe drops its third straight on this six to one to
2: the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on. Let's see, one hit. That's all we
1: got. One goddamn hit.
0: Ever put out in the 100 years of the time. Sell the team. Oh, yeah. Welcome aboard. John Pialy, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Thanks for joining me for hour two of the program. Lots of different stuff to get into. And uh, I'm looking forward to playing this interview I recorded with Former Yankees first baseman outfielder slash designated hitter Ron Bloomberg, and Ron, of course, is well known for being the first designated hitter in the history of Major League Baseball. I find out in the interview something I didn't even know that he is related to the mayor of New York City, Mike Bloomberg. It's actually his uncle. Something that I didn't even think about until I uh, I, I got the chance to speak with Ron Bloomberg. But a lot of great stuff we get into here. Hopefully you guys enjoy this spot with former Yankees first baseman designated hitter Ron Bloomberg. Good afternoon.
1: This is John Piali. I'm here with former Major League first baseman outfielder and designated hitter Ron Bloomberg. Ron, what's going on, man? John, it's great to be able to
2: talk to you. I mean, unfortunately, after the season, the Yankees didn't have a a, a, Lance good uh, uh, finish, but you know, the, the bottom line is the season's over with, we can put it behind us, but you know, the Yankees always going to come out and out, and hopefully next year going to be a lot better than this year.
1: Not very true, sure. and of course, if I'm not mistaken, right now you're, you're working for the Yankees as a scout, right?
2: Well, no, uh, John, I do a lot of stuff with the Yankees. I do a lot of okay. corporate uh, meet and greets uh, with uh, Lon, uh, Traus, and Randy Levine. I do a lot of stuff with uh, a guy named Andrew Levy with the Sweets. Uh, I do, do a lot of uh, uh, radio uh, doing all season. I do a lot of stuff on the fan uh, with Ed Randall every the Sunday. on the fan doing baseball season. And, you know, I'm very, very much involved up there because, you know, I got my camp up there. Uh, I'm up there in July and August for the whole uh, month of July and August. Uh, it's the largest Jewish sleepaway camp. Uh, it's in New Jersey, Wyoming, up in the Poconos. We got uh, close to 4,000 kids. So I'm very, very busy. So I'm very, very blessed. and 65 years old. Keep on going and uh, keep my motor running.
1: Nah, no, that is true, man. And that's how, you, you know, you, you obviously came up with the Yankees played a little bit in 69 and then made your, your, uh, you know, kind of your stand from 71 to 76. Tell us a little bit about coming up in, you know, in the Yankees organization and then uh, eventually becoming a Yankee.
2: Well, John, you know, I was very, very lucky. Uh, I signed with the Yankees in 1967. Uh, I was the number one draft choice in the country out of high school. And I was very, very lucky to come from Atlanta. And, you know, the New York Yankees had always been my uh, our favorite team. Uh, being from Atlanta, uh, being Jewish and uh, living down south, uh, I knew when I came to New York, where you got 8 million Jews up there. You know, So I knew I had something special. So uh, I had a, a basketball scholarship to play at UCLA in 67 with John Wooten, and, and I had a, a letter intent to go uh, out to uh, uh, Westwood out there, but uh, I decided when I got drafted by the Yankees, number one, uh, it was the greatest drill of my life. I've been very, very blessed to be able to put on the greatest uh, uh, uniform in the world and play in the greatest city in the world up in New York. And, you know, I was very, very lucky. I was very, very blessed, and, and when I came up and Unfortunately, the Yankees didn't have the greatest team, but, you know, uh, uh, I got uh, uh, some good years in with the Yankees. Unfortunately, uh, I had almost nine years up in the big leagues. I I had a couple of shoulder operations, a couple of knee operations uh, that. Really uh, hurt my ability to reach my potential, but you know, when I was up there. So, you know, uh, it it, it was the greatest thing I have ever done. I've lived my fantasy and to be able to play with the greatest fans in the whole world, to be able to play with the New York Yankees and being able to play a Yankee Stadium with the greatest people in the world.
1: Well, and I tell you, you know, you touched on, uh, you know, some some of the injuries you had and, you know, kind of holding you back a little bit, but, you know, maybe if it wasn't for that, you wouldn't have been in a position to kind of make history when he did in 1973 of course uh, you became the first uh, designated hitter uh tell us a little bit about that and kind of what you thought about the whole process and then maybe when uh when the moment came that you realized you were the first one to actually getting that bat and do it
2: Well, John, it it happened in 1973, and that was the year that the Yankees adopted, uh, uh, not the Yankees, but the American League adopted the DH. Uh, Nobody had any idea what it was, you know, and I had no idea what it was. Nobody on my team had any idea. We went down to spring training, and uh, uh, Ralph Halk was a manager, and uh, uh, instead of letting the pitchers hit, uh, they just basically put a a pinch hitter in for the picture. And so that's how we look at it. We look at it as a glorified pinch hitter. And nobody had any idea that it was going to last, you know, uh, this is a 40th year anniversary, and uh, nobody had any idea what it was. And uh, uh, fortunately, uh, well, unfortunately, I got a. Uh, fortunately, I I was the first DH in Major League history, but unfortunately, I was injured when I came out, uh, out of spring training, and, and that's how I became the DH. Uh, uh, I had two things: uh, the Yankees me that I want to go on the disabled list. And I said, absolutely not. And they said, okay, instead of putting you on the disabled list, what we're going to do is we're going to let you be the D.H. And I had no idea what it was. You know, I mean, I thought I was a grown-up Jenner. And uh, I came to Boston, and uh, I saw my name on the list, uh, on the line of card, it's D.H. on Bloomberg, and, you know, I, I became the first D.H. But, you know, I, we lost the game 15-5. to After the ball game, uh, we lost, uh, uh, of course, to uh, the Red Sox against Louis Deion, and Mel will I was a pitcher, and I had about 40, 50 uh, reporters around me, and they always and they asked me, what did I think about being the first CH? And I said, I had no idea. I said, you know, so the first comment I made, I said, well, I screwed up the game of baseball, didn't I? Like that, and they all laughed, and I said, well, it's, well, uh, I said, I know it's not going to last more than uh, a few months, and look at it now. It's 40 years later. It's uh, I really screwed up the game of baseball. And, and the funny part about it, people don't realize that being, you know, I mean, the DH is the highest paid position player in the American League. And uh, look what he has done. And uh, this is going to help the Yankees too, having Derek uh, um, Jeter becoming uh, the DH a little bit, and, and resting his leg when he plays next year. And you know, I mean, it's it's uh, it's great for the game of baseball. Uh, the National League will, will never uh, uh, adopt it. Uh, so, you know, it's a very, very big thing. It's a very controversial thing. 50% of the people love it, 50% of the people hate it. So that's why I'm always in a game of baseball, and it, it's been fun.
1: Yeah, and I'll tell you once again, John the here with Ron Bloomberg. Now, what fascinates me about the designated hitter is, like you mentioned about the way it started, uh, being kind of a glorified pinch hitter. It was nothing, no, nowhere close to what it is right now like it took probably about...
2: Nobody had any idea, you know. And the the national league uh, manager said, well, it takes the strategy away from the game of baseball. It doesn't take any strategy from the game of baseball. If you look at the national league, uh, you know, 95% of the national league pitchers don't even know how to hit. They don't even know how to punt. Uh, You know, if if you look at it now, uh, the designated hitter, from uh, 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 Little League, uh, high school, college, and even in the Mono Leagues. Uh, about 80% of the Mono Leagues, even National League Mono Leagues, they have the VH. So none of these pitchers, majority of these pitchers, have ever picked up a bat before. And you can tell if you go to uh, some National League ball games and you watch these games before, uh, or watch these guys uh, try to butt before practice, you know they have no idea how to do it and so it's a lost heart I uh, I think the D.H. is wonderful they made uh, Edgar Martinez uh, Mar- Edgar Martinez into the best D.H. in the game uh, up until I uh, think David Ortez David Ortiz is eventually going to make the Hall of Fame I think and uh, he deserves it and uh, it's, it's, it's great to watch it it's great to watch great hitters and it's great to watch the game of baseball, oh, seven is the eight.
1: Uh, I tell you, it makes, makes the game more fun. I mean, you, it adds the power element, and, you know, we talked just about how, the you know, the game has transformed with the designated hitter. It went from being kind of a an extra bat off the bench that you just wanted to get multiple at-bats to. Now now American League teams in particular look for a guy to be a full-time DH, and it really started with guys like, you know, Hal McRae and, you know, Brian Downing in the 80s with guys like Don Baylor and stuff like that, and, you know, it, it's amazing to see how it's become a very, very important part of a, of, a, of a team when you're when you're looking to put something together in the American League.
2: Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I look at the Yankees and uh, uh, they had uh, uh, Hefner who uh, was a DH with the Yankees this year, and unfortunately, uh, he came from Cleveland and he was uh, um, he came with a lot of injuries, and unfortunately, he did not have. Uh, a, a good season with the Yankees. He was on the DL uh, most of the season, and and first thing when they got him, they said, "Don't bring you club. Only thing you're going to do is hit." And you know, to me, I think that's great. And you know, living in Atlanta, uh, I think uh, a great TH guy uh, is going to be Brian McCann. Uh, and I, I, you know, I, I would love the Yankees to trying to get this guy because number one, he could catch, and also he's a great hitter. And uh, and he really needs an awful lot a ball, uh, ball team. And you know, you, you watch all these guys. And, you know, and, and all you know it's the great part about these guys. About three years ago, I was put into the uh, the Jewish Hall of Fame down in Tampa at the Ted Williams Museum down at Tropicana down with the race. And uh, we had you know some uh, older ball players down there, some newer you know uh, the younger guys. So how. Uh, 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 I always wanted to meet you because, you know, you have helped my career and you put a good five years in uh, with extra, you know, uh, money. Uh, Because when he came from the Giants, I think he went to uh, the Rangers and uh, he had, you know, a a pretty good four years down there. So, you know, uh, a lot of people have been extremely nice to me and they said, you know, there's one of that. You know, I screwed up the game of baseball, but all these guys have come up to me and, and thanked me for giving them an opportunity. I said, I didn't do it. I just got up to bat. You know, I mean, now all of a sudden, you know, Sports Illustrated is a big feature on me this year, and, and being the 40th year, it, it's been really, really incredible. And it's, it's, it's been a great ride, and, you know, especially up in New York when, when you know, people recognize me in two things. Uh, first thing when I go up to New York and uh, make a an airline reservations or going to a hotel, I say, "Ron Bloomberg," they said, "Are you the first TH, da da da, or are you, you know, uh, uh, are you related to Mayor Bloomberg?" And I said, "He's my uncle." So I have a it's, it's I got a win-win situation when I'm up in New York, and, and I have a great time doing
1: it. Right, man. You know, you're going to be, you know, an endeavor to Yankee fans forever. Now, one thing that's obviously, you know, that that that, that comes up a lot it's obviously important to you is your Jewish heritage. Um, you know, talk talk a little bit about that, and maybe you know, you being a, kind of an ambassador to the younger uh, Jewish ballplayers nowadays.
2: Well, I, you know, I I was very very proud to be Jewish, and you know, living down south, I came from a lot of. Uh, uh, I was a major minority, and I came from a lot of anti-Semitic people down here, and and I wrote a book called The Designated Hebrew, and and, and it came out in 2007, and we sold close to 46,000 copies of the book, and I uh, uh, put everything, uh, I gave everything back to uh, the charities, Jewish organizations, and uh, the book was released again uh, last year, and it's, it's done extremely well again, so. And uh, the book has uh, have made me uh, uh, a pretty popular uh, player with uh, a lot of Jewish uh, uh, younger kids. And, you know, and people don't realize growing up down south, many of my teammates were in the KKK. And uh, I grew up with that. You know, when you have Lester Maddox, who's the governor of Georgia, and you had uh, 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 George Wallace, who, uh, of course, was the governor of Alabama, and then you go to South Carolina and says, Welcome to Grand Country. You know, I mean, it was very, very difficult. And, you know, and and that's one of the major reasons why I chose to go with the Yankees and and to be able to play with my heritage up in New York and and very, very proudly. And I was very, very blessed to be able to uh, uh, associate and to be very, very close with them. And, you know, so. Uh, even to this day, I go up to New York and speak to so many, uh, religious groups and have in my camp, uh, the New Jersey Y Camp, where it's the largest Jewish sleepaway camp in the country to be involved in and, and to, uh, uh, to talk at, uh, people's, uh, bar mitzvahs and weddings and, you know, so. I'm very very pl- I'm proud and, and you know in 77 when uh, the Yankees got into World Series of course I did not play a Russia John and Yankee Burnham and I was like uh, uh, a little bit like Sandy Colt actually did not play so you know I, I'm very very blessed I'm very very proud to be Jewish and I'm very very uh, proud to relate this to uh, to people all across the country.
1: Now once again John Fiali here with Ron Bloomberg now of course um, yeah, you, you, know, uh, you know, I wanted to get your opinion. Uh, you know, obviously Ryan Braun is a great player, uh, you, you know, the National League MVP. He's obviously had some issues with performance-enhancing drugs. Um, have, you, have you ever gotten a chance to speak to Ryan in regards to that?
2: You know, you know, John, I have not. And, you know, and, and when you're talking about the um, all the drug issues and stuff, thank God we didn't have any of these problems. And, and you know, it really diluted the game of baseball. And uh, if you are A-Rod or Ryan Braun or, uh, you know, and uh, all these guys who... Uh, been accused of having and Roger Clemens and, and you know and you have uh, uh, you know all these guys who are, are superstars and they didn't even you know I mean they didn't need to, uh, to do all this stuff. And you know nobody, to be honest with you John, nobody had any idea what it was in the early 70s. They did it because somebody said, you know, if, if you're injured, you could get better, and, you know, they took it. So, you know, it wasn't really against the law of baseball. And then and, and then it became a law. And, you know, when something becomes a law, you know, you need to abide by it. And, you know, it's just only so many times that you can uh, tell people, you can take it, uh, you know, all of a sudden you hit 10 home runs, and then the next year you hit 50. So, you know, that's, uh, that's not a kosher thing, and, you know, I, I think uh, a lot of guys, if they would have came out, uh, a lot of these big guys, say, I took it, I made a major mistake and I want to talk about it, I want to talk about it uh, with the younger kids because it just doesn't happen just in baseball, basketball, football and professional level. It happens in college and high school levels and you know, you you see these guys and they don't understand, you know, my son's a physician and uh, my daughter's a doctor too and and so, you know, I, I talk about it all the time and that's why you have so many poor muscles now. And that's why you have so many problems with people breaking down. Because, hey, when we played, we didn't break down. We just got old. And, you know, nowadays, all these guys are breaking down. They got oblique muscle pulls. I never heard of an oblique muscle pull because you you, you swung a baseball bat. You've been swinging a baseball bat your whole life. You know, so, uh, uh, hey, you know, it's it's, it's bad for the game of baseball. It's bad for, you know, I I just hope that, you know, uh, the game of baseball could come back clean again and people don't talk about the the enhancing drugs and. People could talk about baseball averages and, and uh, one loss and because, I mean, hey, you know, it's, it's the greatest game in the world and, you know, you don't have to take all these drugs to be, you know, good and, you know, and you don't need to take it because eventually it's going to come back to haunt you and it's going to hurt you down the line, very, very much so.
1: Yeah, very true. Listen, I want to thank you for having some time. appreciate you being part of the program, and and hopefully I can have you on sometime in the near future.
2: John, it's wonderful to be able to talk to you, and I know that we go back and forth, and, you know, I had a very, very busy summer. Anytime you need me, your fans are the greatest. Anytime you need for me to uh, help you talk about anything, I would love to help you out, John.
0: All right. Thanks a lot, man. Thank you, John. So hopefully you guys enjoyed that spot there with Ron Bloomberg obviously a great you know great man in addition to being a very good baseball player does a lot for the community and You know, still involves himself in Major League Baseball. He works for the New York Yankees now, and, you know, great to see him doing well. But, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, what we're going to do is we're going to take our first break at this part of the show. We'll be back with a lot more stuff going on after this.
1: Are you searching for something
2: different for your child's education? Consider Atlanta Christian School, where faith and
1: quality education meet. Listen to what one of our students has to say about their experience at ACS. Atlanta Christian School is an amazing school, it has many different Qualities that set it apart from public schools. It is an extremely safe environment where students care and look after each other. There is a Bible class where students learn about God and grow closer to Him. In Bible class, we do chop shop. It is where we learn to dissect God's words so we can hear His direction for our lives. They have service projects where we learn to serve our Lord and community. Atlanta Christian School is a wonderful place that changes the lives of the students that go there. Come learn about our new lower tuition rates at our open house every
2: Wednesday from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. at 391 Zion Road. In Egg Harbor Township. Or enroll today. Visit us on the web at ACSEHT.org or call six five three eleven ninety-nine Atlantic Christian School, where character, Christ, and community count.
0: What's up everybody? This is James Flippin. And Joey Baboots.
1: We host the morning show together, and every morning we start up our cars and make the drive up to the studio.
0: And you know we always see one or two accidents along the way we wanted to make sure our listeners know where to go for the best in car care in South Jersey
1: that's right James Red Rose Body Shop that's Red Rose Body Shop specializes in collision and framework they're the best in South Jersey for paint and body work unibody framework free towing and free estimates
0: so call today 609 927 9454 and check out their website www.redroseautobody.com follow them on Facebook and Twitter Red
1: Rose Red Rose Body Shop, 2033 Ocean Heights Avenue, Egg Harbor Township, New Jersey, 609-927-9454.
0: Red Rose Body Shop is South Jersey's collision specialist.
1: 609-927-9454
0: or redrosebodyshop.com. Been in an accident? Take your car to the professionals
2: at Red Rose Body Shop.
0: Yeah, welcome back, John Piele, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Hopefully, you guys are enjoying the program so far. Uh, a couple of different things I want to get into, but one—one one I feel like I'm kind of forced to get into because people that associate with me in the baseball world don't want to get my opinion about—I guess what would be considered hot topics. And one of the things that's gone on during the postseason has been the—the the, the play and the flamboyance of uh, Los Angeles Dodgers outfielder Yasiel Puig and. You know, to me, I, I don't think it's much of an issue, but I've been asked a number of times, and I feel like I got to comment on it. Yesio Puig is a is an extremely talented player. He has a chance to be a top player in all of Major League Baseball. Uh, you know, he's an all or nothing type of hitter. He carries that arrogance to him that he knows he's good, and he's going to let everybody know that he is. And at the same time, he's gonna he doesn't care about showing up the the other team, the opponent, the whole thing. And to me, I don't have that much of a problem with it. You know, if the guy's good, if he's if he's as good as he says that he is or as good as he's proven that he is, he's going to continue to show that. And that's one of the things that – you know, people in, in baseball or people that follow baseball wanna wanna be so critical about things like this, whether it's Brian McCann and, you know, the way he feels about certain players kind of showing up the Braves a little bit. You know, a guy like Yesio Puig obviously is gonna get under people's skin. You know, teams that are playing the Los Angeles Dodgers are not gonna be happy with the antics of a Yesio Puig. He has this this kind of uh, attitude to himself that hey, if he doesn't he if he doesn't go after a ball, you know, a certain way, he doesn't feel like he needs to be reprimanded. About it, that's something he had to deal with with Dodgers manager Don Mattingly and the organization for a couple of instances that happened during this past season. But Yasiel Puig is a good player, and he goes out there and he plays the game his own way. And you know, a guy like Carlos Beltran who goes out there and makes a comment and says, you know, you know, you know, something along the line of it's not right what he's doing. Well, he forgot that he played how many years with Jose Reyes, who did similar stuff. And if you're a fan of the New York Mets, you're going to think that Jose Reyes, his antics and the stuff that he did was fine, but Yasiel Puig's aren't. And that's, you know, pure homerism as at its best. Now, I have a problem with that. I think you're going to either agree that players should be able to express themselves however they feel, however they want to, but... If it doesn't apply to a player that's on your own team, you have a problem with it. And I, I don't get it. I think it's a double standard. Um, Yasiel Puig, listen, he's made a lot of enemies. There's a lot of fans in, uh, you know, in Major League Baseball. There's a lot of teams and players on teams and organizations that aren't happy with the way Yasiel Puig carries himself. But the bottom line is you have to be either all or nothing. And that's the way I've agreed with so many different topics that go on in Major League Baseball. It's either agree with one point 100%. Or don't agree with it at all, but don't pick and choose the certain ways that you want it to be okay. You know, and and players on every team have that emotion to them. And Adrian Gonzalez, who gets excited after getting a big hit, you know, that shouldn't be treated differently than Yasiel Puig. But at the same time, I'm telling you that it's okay for Yasiel Puig to do that. Every team should have the right to express themselves in their own way. Every player should have that ability to let loose and let it known how they really feel about something. And this whole sensitivity crap you know, needs to stop. You know, Major League Baseball teams got to stop getting so sensitive when these, when these players go out there and show you know, other teams up. You know, the Carlos Gomez incident, I thought was a little bit different. I thought I thought Car- Carlos Gomez kind of came into that situation with a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. He was pissed off at Paul Mahalum. He was going to do everything he can to make a big deal about what was going on there. I thought he was a little bit wrong in the way he did it. But at the same time, the Atlanta Braves, are they necessarily the police of Major League Baseball? Is Brian McCann the guy that's going to say, hey, if this stops here, this isn't going to happen to us? Eh, listen, you know, if, you know in that instance, I thought the Braves, McCann was right for making a big deal about it, but I also don't think that he should do that on every play to every player. And when players go out there to express themselves in a certain way, uh, you know what? The, the other team has the opportunity, if they want, to throw, throw at them, to hit them. To, to make a stand, to kind of get themselves some sort of retribution for what they feel like they were wrong. And that's what makes Major League Baseball interesting. That's what makes Major League Baseball fun. And, you know, I know nobody wants to go out there and see bench-clearing fights and, you know, the the whole thing where people could get hurt and stuff like that. But that's inside the game. That's part of the game. That's the kind of things that happen. You see that on a day-in and day-out basis because teams are so competitive, players are so competitive, they want to win just as much as the other guy. So if you're upset at something that Yasiel Puig does and if you're Carlos Beltran and the St. Louis Cardinals, then hit him. Do it. You know, Ryan Dempster expressed himself this year, you know, whether you think it was right or wrong for throwing at Alex Rodriguez because he didn't agree with, you know, him being playing in major league baseball, being associated and involved with steroids and performance enhancing drugs. He took it upon himself to hit him. And if the, the Red Sox were so, uh, you know, if, if the Yankees were so offended by that, you know, they could have retaliated. I understand the situation they were in. They were chasing the Red Sox. They couldn't afford to lose CC Sabathia in that spot. It was a situation where it probably wouldn't have made sense to turn that game into a big old brawl. But if the Yankees were so offended by Ryan Dempster throwing at Alex Rodriguez, they, they, they could have retaliated. They had the opportunity to take it in their own hands. Don't take it to the media. Don't, have, don't, don't be sitting there in an interview and talk about how you disagree with something that another player on another team does. If you have a problem with it, take them up on it. You know, make it into the game that it is, the competitive nature of the whole thing. If you want to hit a home run and show Yasiel Puig up by dancing around the bases and pointing at him the whole time you go around the bases, then you've got the right to do that. That's, I feel like you have your own prerogative. You have your own opinion. You can do that if you, you, you take shape and feel like that deserves to be said in that way. But don't take it to the media. Take it out on the field. You know, a guy like Ryan Dempster, if he's that ticked off about steroids and performance-enhancing drugs, being in, involved in baseball, and then you know what? I'd like to see him facing Johanny Peralta in the ALCS this year. Is he going to throw at him? Well, I'm sure if the game's on the line, he's not going to, but maybe in a mop-up game, which let's be honest, Ryan Dempster is not part of the Boston Red Sox rotation. He's not going to get involved in a big spot in this game unless you get to an extra inning situation where you get in the, you know, inning number 11, inning number 12, inning number 13. He's not going to be in a big spot of the game. If Ryan Dempster gets in the game, you know, either the Red Sox are going to be up by a lot or trailing by a lot. And that would set up a spot that he could make his point that if he's so against performance-enhancing drugs in Major League Baseball, then he'll go and hit Jahani Peralta. And I think he should. If he feels that way, if he's that strong about it, if he really feels like that's the wrong thing to do, then I think he should go out there and and, and maybe make a, make his point again and say, listen, I'm going to throw at every uh, either accused or suspected steroid abuser. Melky is getting one in the back. You know, Nelson Cruz is getting hit. Make a stand. And you know what? I could respect the guy for feeling that way, but don't single out Alex Rodriguez. And I said it's either all or nothing the way you feel about this kind of stuff. And you know, I say when you know in regards to Major League Baseball, this showboating and stuff, it's hit where it's where it's it's a it's a tremendous level. It's at probably at the highest point that it's ever been. David Ortiz doesn't hit a home run where he doesn't do his little jig, where he takes those couple steps and tosses the bat. Uh, listen, if a team is that offended by it, then I, I I want David Ortiz to get one in the back the next time he comes to plate you know don't go in the media and say wow I don't like the way David Ortiz kind of uh, taunts the opposition after he hits a big home run take it in your own hands that's what Major League Baseball is about that's why you have you know that 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 system in baseball that you could kind of go at it and and take it upon yourself to battle against the team that you're playing don't take it to the media and that's my last point about it just don't take it to the media and say oh I don't like the way Yasiel Puig plays the game if you have a problem with it and you're facing him hit him hit him hit him with the baseball if you want to make a make a scene about it if you if you see him coming into second base and you and you want to make you know make contact with him make your point known on the field not in the media John Piella Passball Show MTR Radio Network while we're on the Dodgers I'm going to segue into another discussion that I had Took to Bases Empty blog, check it out, JohnPielli.com, the whole thing, MTRmedia.com slash John You could get all my interviews, all my blog postings, everything going on with the past ball show. But you know, the Dodgers, of course, you know, are known for having two managers and maybe even three, if you go back to Wilbert Robertson of the uh, you know, the nineteen teens and the nineteen twenties, had three managers to stand out in, in their history that had their history of being with the Dodgers franchise for a long time. And, of course, we talk about Walter Alston and Tommy Lasorda, who ended up being managers of the Dodgers from the Brooklyn Dodgers to the Los Angeles Dodgers in Alston's case. And, of course, with the, with the Los Angeles Dodgers when Tommy Lasorda took over. And between the two of them, they were the manager of the team for a 42-year span. And a guy that was pretty much hand by Tommy Lasorda to take over for him when it was time for him to retire was former Dodgers shortstop Bill Russell. And Bill Russell, of course, had a very good career with the Dodgers, you know, uh, won a World Series with them, appeared in a couple other ones, I think was pretty much done with the game by the time they won their second World Series title in 1988. But he was on the coaching staff with Lasorda. He was Lasorda's bench coach. He was his go-to guy. When Lasorda was planning on retiring, he wanted to hand the reins to Bill Russell and what would have been interesting is you would have had a chance to see the legacy continue like it did from Alston to Lasorda from Lasorda to Bill Russell and unfortunately that didn't that didn't turn out in in that way because the Dodgers switched ownership groups they ended up uh going to going to uh what was it News News Corp they ended up making some serious changes which involved the dismissing of longtime general manager and longtime Los Angeles Dodgers executive Fred Clare, and of course uh, Bill Russell, who was the manager at the time, was also let go. And one thing I do want to get into is, hey, how would Bill Russell's record look if he had stuck it out and stayed the manager for the Los Angeles Dodgers for this long? Because you know it hasn't been 20 years since Lasorda stepped aside. So it, you know if you're looking for a 20-year block, Bill Russell would still be the manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers. And and you know what? Uh, you know, when you look at the way this ends up turning out. Uh, of course, after Russell left, he was replaced with Glenn Hoffman. Davy Johnson took over. And then it was Jim Tracy, Grady Little, Joe Torrey, and of course, Don Mattingly, who was the current manager over the last 15 years, even over that span. The Dodgers change managers less often than any other team in Major League Baseball. And, of course, a lot has to do with Alston's run and Lasorda's run. But, uh, you know, you can make uh, a very fair argument that Bill Russell got a raw deal in L.A. He finished out the 1996 season, managed all of 1997, was let go 74 games into the 1998 season that was probably not enough time to get an idea of how good of an in-game manager he was whether he was whether he wasn't and he had a very good teacher with Tommy Lasorda as well so a short stay in L.A. was the, you know, probably the reason he hasn't gotten a job since. You know During Alston's time, of course, the Dodgers won four World Series, 55-59, 63-65. We talked about that before. Three pennants, 56-66 and 74. Lasorda got two more World Series, 81 and 88. Two more pennants, 77-78. The Dodgers also won three more division titles in 83-85 and 95. 2013 was the fourth NL West title since the you know, Lasorda left. So it's been 2004, 2008, 2009, and 2013. After making it in as the wild card in 96 and 2006, they were swept out of the division series both years. So as I said earlier, Alston managed the Dodgers for nearly 23 seasons, 3,558 games, finished with a 2040 and 1613 record for his career. Now, Lasorda, managed in 3,040 games, finished with a 1599 and 1439 record. Here's what I find interesting. Russell, in his time, finished with a 173 and 49 record in his full season and two half seasons. Since Lasorda retired as Dodger manager, the team has gone 1469 and 1340. That covers 2,809 games. Lasorda finished with a 526 career winning percentage. The Dodgers winning percentage since Lasorda left is, get this, 523. So you can make a case that Russell should be sitting with a record of 1469 and 1340 over his 16 and a half seasons as a Dodger manager. The thing that kept Lasorda around, of course, was his reputation of the Dodgers franchise. The Dodger blew the whole thing, which was started by Fred Claire being the ambassador of the team. It also helped that he won. I mean, he's brought two World Series championships, two more pennants, You know, something that Russell or any manager that has come by in the Los Angeles Dodgers organization since has not done. And obviously, you know, this is a this is a situation where Los Angeles, the whole area, the Dodgers, the franchise is all about winning. They haven't won since. So you can make a case that maybe Russell would not have stuck around, even if Fred Claire was still the general manager, even if it was still bleed Dodger blue, the whole thing, because it's all about winning. And if you don't win World Series championships, if you don't get to World Series championships, you know that the whole uh, the, the timetable for being a manager, the longevity of being a major league manager, does not last that long. And I find it, you know, very very interesting to look at. I like the way it, you know it, it's set up. You know, the Dodgers did make some managerial changes. You know, you add in the managerial career of of Wilbert Robertson. You know, 18 seasons as a Brooklyn Robins manager, and you know what? You could have had four managers in 76 of the last 100 seasons. From 1914 towards Lasorda leaving the Dodgers in 1996, the team had three managers in 60 of 82 seasons. So I find that fascinating. I'd really you know, I love longevity in Major League Baseball. It would have been interesting to see if Bill Russell would have stuck around, but we're going to skip our last break here because I got an interview I uh, recorded with former Major League catcher Toby Hall. And Toby uh, you know, has a foundation. He does a lot of good things for a lot of young kids. And you know, he was a very good catcher for the Tampa Bay Rays over the, about a three, four-year span. So hopefully you guys enjoyed this spot with Toby Hall. Enjoy the rest of your week. And we'll – catch up with you next week, a pass ball show right here on the MTR Radio Network. Hi, good afternoon. It's
1: John Piali. and here with former Major League catcher Toby Hall. Toby, what's going on, man? Yeah, are
2: you doing,
1: John? Uh, pretty good, man. And, uh, you know, definitely uh, thanks for having a couple minutes tonight. Um, first, uh, you know, I'll give you a little, a little chance off the bat. Talk a little bit about, your, you know, your, the foundation you got and everything that you're doing now to uh, to support the kids. the It's called
2: the uh, Toby Hall Foundation. Uh, the white fi started back in '05. Um... Just to kind of give back, really, in the the community here in Tampa Bay, uh, none of the baseball players really had a foundation. There was kind of you know, Mike Alfstad, Derek Brooks, and John Lynch. So, uh, I wanted to we'll, we'll reside here in Tampa, so it's I wanted to give back to the community, and and we would have uh, bowling tournaments, and now we have golf tournaments right now. So once a year, we always have a spring training classic in February. We get back to. Uh, kids with disabilities to be able to play baseball. It's um, a great way to, it's called Buddy Baseball, and uh, the other one's called the Miracle League. It was nice. kind of kind of brought that when uh, I was with the White Sox. We went on a, a player uh, signing. We thought we were going to the Lou League. We came to find out it was uh, all these kids with disabilities out there playing baseball, so it was just a really humbling thing. And uh, to be able to watch these kids, and be able to
1: fund them, and so that they can grab them play. No, it's awesome, I mean, It obviously gives them an the opportunity to play, and you know, probably to play against each other, which is cool. And uh, yeah, I tell you, you know, you know, keep up the good work with that. You know, phenomenal job. Well see. So, yeah, John Pierre here with Toby Hall. Now, Toby, of course, you you know, you, you you spent the majority of your career with the Tampa Bay Devil Rays, and you know, you obviously you know, you live out there, so you you know, you you you're probably your heart probably belongs to you know that organization. Tell us a little bit about First, you know your, you know your impersonation of your time in Tampa, and you know what it meant to be a double rest. Oh,
2: well, you know, you know that was the organization that drafted me, and uh, to be able to come out there and, and, you know, them give me the opportunity to, to play in the big leagues, uh, you know, I can, I can, I owe that to them. So, uh, just unfortunately, you know, I like your four managers in that time there, and nothing really clicked, you know. So, the way I look at it now, you know, I take my board of these games and. If we wouldn't have lost all those years, we would have had all these first rounders. So, uh, you know, they they got a great pitching staff now, and a lot of those guys are able to, to go out there, and they can, you know, put a, a competitive team out there. But it's great. You know, he's 10 now, so I can get to, you know, take him to the field and, and watch them, uh, watch them win.
1: Yeah, that's awesome, man. And I tell you, you know, you make a good point when you talk about, you know, you sometimes you got to go through some losing to you know, end up working on your farm system. The draft picks ends up end up piling up, and obviously the the Tampa Bay Rays now have have gotten a very very good chance to take advantage of it.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Always. You know, we always talk about that the community. Like, you know, they never give us enough credit. Like Aubrey House and talking You know, all those years that we lost. You know, they just stacked on their uh, their farm system, but. Uh, it was uh you know it was fun it's just obviously you know at that time you don't know any different because that's you know you're in the big leagues and you're young and whatnot but uh especially you know you're going through four managers and nothing really nothing just clicked as an organization but uh you know having Madden in there now and, and uh new ownership and,
1: and the direction they're going in it it's nice to see yeah absolutely Now, of course you came up uh Drafted in 97, ended up going through the farm system. You actually had a big year in 2001. Tell us a little bit about the year you had. You know, you hit 335. You know, you you, you pretty much tore up the league. I think you, you you were the MVP of that league. Tell us a little bit about everything clicking in 2001 and, you know, what, what it meant to have a, such a breakout season like that. Well,
2: of so, so like when I went to college, I went, I went to a uh, junior college first. I went to UNLV and, and the, the Giants had drafted me and uh, they wanted me to catch at that time, I was a 1st baseman, third baseman, then, and when I took my scholarship to, to UNLV, they had a great catching coach there, and uh, Fred Dalmore was a manager, so it was kind of one of those things where they were going to help me learn how to catch and kind of get my feet wet and then see what would happen in my junior year about draft time. So catching all of my junior year, and then get drafted by Tampa, you know, coming, coming out, and then all of a sudden going to the minor leagues. It, it didn't really quick, uh, you know, I... You know, good years there. We, you know, throughout the years, offensively, and, and but my main focus was working on my defense and, and learn how to block and throw people out and my key work and all that good stuff. Um, I don't think it really really clicked till you know around 2000 and, and then really clicked in 2001. So yeah, you know, I owe a lot of that, you know, especially to John Flaherty, but we, you know, he was our. He was our catcher up in the big leagues at that time. And, you know, he said, hey, you're going to
1: be the future of this organization. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to, you know, kind of pass the torch kind of speech, you know. And, you know, it taught me a lot. Yeah, I tell you, you talk about, you know, transitioning from playing kind of a prime hitting position, first base, third base, and then becoming a catcher. What did you What did you think was the biggest thing that you had to work on? What was your biggest transition into becoming a full-time catcher?
2: I tell you, he had everything. You know, it was, it was almost you know, first you had to learn how to, you know, call a game and then it was all right, balls and dirt, you need to learn how to block the ball with a, with a strong arm that I you know, they project me and I had it was almost like I had to I had to get my footwork down because I, I wasn't a little guy so I, I had to catch my, my arm speed up with my feet. So all of the same it just took a lot of work and, and you know, I to have a lot to the coaches and you know obviously the dedication to go out there and do it. But it was a it was a it wasn't like he just popped to the field all of a sudden, here we go, and it just clicked. It was a lot of hard work, and I owe, I owe a lot to that, a lot
1: of those coaches. No question about it. Once again, John Piel here, former major league catcher, Toby Hall. Now, now you talk about, you know, your, your days with the Devil Rays, and obviously, you know, the team was known for a while. of Not, you know, you know a lot, lot of wins there, uh, some very tough seasons. You mentioned the different managers, you know, that you ended up going through. Um, you know, talk a little bit about, about you know, what the focus is, you know, being on a team like that, and obviously being a young player, uh, you know, making your, your first impact in the major leagues. I'm sure it's frustrating sometimes, you know, seeing that, you know, the team's losing a lot. How are you able to uh, keep yourself motivated and just, uh, you know, put, put the best product on the field? You know, when you probably know in the back of your head that the team probably it doesn't have the amount of talent that it does against a lot of its competition. Yeah,
2: especially, you know, at that time, I mean, I mean they're still in the American League East, but, uh, you know, the AL East at that time, when you really look back at all the dominating pitchers and hitters uh, in the American League that was going on in that era, uh, it was tough. We could never catch up to what was going on. We would always score runs. We just always give up a lot of runs.
1: Yeah, now you know as you move forward. Of course, you mentioned you got a chance to play for a couple different managers. First, tell us a little bit about what it was like to play for Hal McCray, because Hal McCray was obviously a very hard-nosed player, a very, very, right. good, very good hitter in his time. You know, one of the first real, uh, real power-hitting DHs in Major League Baseball history. Uh, tell us a little bit about you know what it was like playing for Hal, and you know how how, how you felt things went there.
2: Well, I fortunate, you know, he was our heavy coach the year before, the bench coach, and uh, when Rothschild was there. So, you know, we were able to get to know each other and, and whatnot, and then when Rothschild got fired, uh, you know, Hal hopped in there. You know, as, as a young guy, the hard, hard part was, you know, trying to grasp the fact of of making those adjustments and, and what goes on and and uh, on, on certain days and certain pitches. So... Um, yeah, you know, he taught us that, but unfortunately, you know, he was, he was only there for another year or so, so, um, but Lou, you know, Lou came in, so that was the hard part, He you has know, such a great, you know, looking back at his career and, and to be able to realize, you know, wow, you know, how's our how manager, uh you know, I looked up to him, and then uh, Lou comes in there for a couple of years, so it was, it was, a, it was quite,
1: quite the roller coaster of uh and yeah, no question. And of course, he touched on Lou Pinella, and Lou probably, in his own like fiery way, probably managed to uh, raise it up a notch for even Hal McRae. And I know that's you know it's a lot to say because Hal was kind of, was kind of known for a lot of a lot of similar tactics in his managerial style. But tell tell us a little bit about you know what it was like to play for Lou Pinella, and how you know from your perception, how was Lou able to handle you know being such a winner and used to his team's always winning. You know, how, how, what kind of impact did you see that have on him?
2: Well, I think, you know, uh, unfortunately, I think they promised Lou uh, a little more pitching than he expected. And, uh, you know, they didn't really grow and get it for him. And, you know, there's so many conversations that him and I would have. And I think it's just bottom line is, you know, all the antics and all the things you see Lou out there. Um, he just wants to win. And that's, that was a, the greatest thing that I got from him, actually, you know, turned my mentality, you know, obviously you want to go out there and win every game, but um, the the fear that he had in him, and day in and day out, uh, just went to show you that bottom line is he's a born winner, and that's all he wants to do is win.
1: Yeah, and I'll tell you, one thing that's interesting about Luke Pinella, and once again, John Piala here with Toby Hall. Now, um, you know, Luke, Luke Pinella was a guy that probably is more known for the antics and stuff that, you know, you see with, you know, arguing with the umpires, you know, getting in people's faces. But the guy the guy was a hell of a manager. And if you break down really his, his entire career, all the different places he was at, you know, he won in most of them and really knew what he was doing behind the bench. And, I, you know, sometimes I don't think Lou Pinella gets enough credit for how good of a manager he was. Was. Right, exactly, and that's
2: that was, you know, especially, you know, him, him living here in Tampa, and, you know, it was, it was almost a great right fit, and, um, to be able to have him come in here and us not be able to, uh, win for him, that was the hard part, to watch him go to Chicago, uh, that was hard too, you know, it's almost like, hey, I, I wanted to see him end his, his uh, coaching career as a winner, so, uh, a lot of stuff I learned from him. It was great to be able to be
1: able to play for him. Yeah, no a question about it. And of course, you end up, you know, for the 2006 season before you end up being traded to the Dodgers. You play a little bit for Joe Madden. Now, did you see in Joe Madden that you know he he was a guy that would end up having the type of success he has? I know, I know, a lot of it has to do with the farm system and a lot of the a lot of the pitchers and the players that came up there. But uh, you know, what, what was what was your your impersonation of getting a chance to play for Joe Madden?
2: So, it was, it was
1: kind of a culture shock, you know, from to, uh, you know, that, you
2: know, that tear snaps and kicking bags and throwing things to uh, uh, a little mannered, um, you know, Matt, you know, sat back and, you know, we used to get fined, uh, you know, $1,000 from Lou and all of a sudden we get to a man and was, you know, we get fined a bottle of wine, you know, so there was different things that, you know, we had to sit back and realize that it's a culture shock, you know, when you have a guy that comes in every night. You know, yelling. and then, you know, another one that comes in is different, you know, and the communications are a little bit different, but it works. And that's the thing that is, you know, he's a, he's a talker. You know, he, he can sit you down and actually, um, you know, convince you that, you know, with you know, certain things throughout your game that are great. And, uh, you yeah, know, unfortunately, i was only able to be with him for three months. But, you know, to be able to talk to him nowadays and be able to see what he does out there, uh,
1: he's almost like a, a, a mental magician out there, you know, some of the things that he does. And, uh, he's a great guy. Yeah, he does a lot of things, you know, really outside the box, you know. And, uh, you know, a lot of the moves that he makes, you know, believe it or not, end up working. That's why he probably doesn't yeah. face as much criticism as he would if, you know, if a lot of the decisions he made didn't work out. But, you know, obviously the guy's right. done a phenomenal job and deserves, you know, all the credit for the success that the team has had over the last several years.
2: As you can see, you know, you
1: look back at
2: uh, when it, we, used to, we put the shift on over there for Big Poppy and, and everybody's like, what are you doing, you know, look at that big hole over there on the left side. I mean, that's probably taken
1: away 500 hits from him in the last, you know, I don't know how many years. So, no question. Um, so. And once again, John out here with four major league catcher Toby Hall, and of course in a... The 2006 season, you end up getting traded to the Los Angeles Dodgers. The Dodgers end up making a postseason that that year. Tell us a little bit about the change going from Tampa Bay to LA. Well, that's right.
2: You know, I was from California. You know, like the, when I was younger, was, was able to go to some better games. My grandparents were both Dodgers fans, so uh, to be able to put that uniform on was almost like being a, you know, New York year You know, it's kind of it has that uh, nostalgia about it. Uh,
1: you end up going to Chicago White Sox for a couple of years, um, you know, some, some decent teams there and, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about your experience in Chicago.
2: Uh, and was looking to perform and, and help that team out, but uh, I still, to this day, can't throw right, and uh, that's the hard
1: part about after surgery and all that, so. Yeah, I tell you, overall, you know, you end up having a good major league career. I'm sure it's something that you end up being proud of, Toby, and, yeah, you know, before I let you go, just uh, one more quick plug for your, you know, for your foundation and everything you do, and anybody that's listening wants to, uh, you know, involve themselves.
2: Thanks, John. It's, uh, all, you can go on Toby uh, read more about, you know, what we do and, 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 how we give back. And, um, it's just very rewarding to be able to go out there and, and, you know, we have one event a year and, and to be able to help support them and, and watch the smiles on these kids' faces to be able to go out and play baseball and be able to talk to other kids, uh, that have the same
1: disabilities. So, it's great. Yeah, no question. Keep up the good work. Read re- everything you're doing with the foundation, Toby, and I appreciate you having a couple minutes today. No oh,
2: problem, Tom. Take care. Have a good day. Tune in
1: to show. by a guy called